This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host David Holloway and it's great as always to be here with you. Uh, And I'd also like to do a big welcome for the second time to Mr Matt Goodluck. How are you Matt? G'day David, great to be back again. Yeah, no, look, as our resident prog guru and and um, Paul being able to make this gig, it's it's lovely to ha- have you back on board. And the reason we have you on board as our prog guru is because we um, are go- about to interview Mr. Jeff Downs, um, yes. obviously of yes, Asia, yes, um, from the prog viewpoint, um, fame, and obviously has done a massive amount more than that, um, as you'll hear during the interview. So um, yeah, it was it was an absolute pleasure catching up uh, with Jeff, and um, I believe you'll enjoy this one a great deal. Jeff, can't thank you enough for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. Yeah, nice to be here. Nice to be uh, connected over the. Uh Around the globe, as it were. Yeah, no, it's 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 absolutely our pleasure. And um, are you getting out and about a little bit more in the UK? It's sort of opening up a little bit. Yeah, it is a little bit. Um, I think there's still a bit of trepidation about um, you know about, about going out full on like it was before. But um, certainly, we've seen quite a bit of. Uh, you know, quite a bit of movement from where it was this time last year, that's for sure. Absolutely. And over that time, Jeff, I know you, you do a lot of studio work. Have you kept busy in the studio doing either your own work or producing for other people? What, how have you sort of kept yourself busy over that time? Well, I've done a couple of albums in the uh, in the lockdown period. Mm. Obviously, um, you know, the Yes album, as we finished that a few months ago, that's coming out next uh, in the beginning of October. Um I've done an album with a project that I've been working on for about 10 years with a, a guy called Chris Braid, a songwriter. And so, uh, and a couple of production ideas and a few people sent me a few files, a few overdubs, and I've been cleaning my studio up. So uh, I've been, you know, for the large part, I've been quite busy. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll definitely be talking both about Downs Braid and the new S album, uh, Yes album. So looking forward to that. Um I just need to start with a bit of an interesting early question. I discovered earlier today you actually have played the world's largest organ in good old Australia. I have in, in Sydney, Sydney Opera House, which was um, an incredible experience. And I was taken round 
into the where all the pipes are, and uh, that was a fantastic experience to see. You know, the the, the size. It's almost like a uh, you know someone's mansion at the back, full <laughs> of pipes. You know, it's huge. Uh, so it's brilliant. Yeah. So well, yeah, I got I got uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, rattle a couple of tunes out on it. Nice. What a great experience. So, Jeff, I've got a question for you. You hit the number one spot on the charts around the world back in 1980 with the Buggles, and then you jumped into Yes, which saw you release the excellent drama album, and the subsequent tour had you selling out three consecutive nights at Madison Square Gardens. Then a couple of years later, you had the best-selling album of 1982 in America with Asia's debut. It must have felt like you were just living a dream at the beginning of the 80s. Yeah, I mean, that was, uh, I had a hell of a run for a couple of years, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, the great thing is that I'm still involved with with all of those three bands that, uh, you know, that, that I was involved with them, which, which says a lot, you know, so we've got on 40 years and I'm still still involved with, with all of those bands. So it's just kind of, you know, it's almost come full circle over the last few years. Absolutely. So when, when you got into Yes back in 1980, you'd, you'd come from having a this worldwide smash hit and then you quickly jumped into this well-established prog band who at that stage weren't really known for hit singles. So how did you find the transition going from playing three-minute pop songs to learning to play these more intricately composed epics on tour? Well, I think at the time, Yes were going through quite a big change, not, not just in personnel, but in their thinking because they'd they'd done the 70s uh, they'd played these huge arenas and done these extravagant productions and these great big long uh symphonic pieces that lasted 20 minutes and um i think that when we joined them i think they were very um they were very interested in in changing the direction i mean it was the turn of the eight you know into the 80s and I think, yes, we're looking, certainly Steve, Chris and Alan at the time were looking to do something a bit different. And so when Trevor and I joined, it was very much a case of, well, I think we brought, the Bugles was very much about technology. That was our, our theme in a lot of the songs. So uh, I think we brought that aspect into Yes's music, which, uh, you know, at the time people were, you know, Yes had always been about bucolic scenes and pastoral scenarios and all that sort of stuff and we were like these two techno guys who came in and, and started to shake up the, the foundations of uh you know as you say this very revered established band of musicians so um uh, at the time i think it was uh, a surprise uh and we had we had a bit of resistance from quite a lot of the fans but i think as time has gone by um the drama album has become something of a you know it's, it's become something of a, a, a an item in yes's catalog which uh you know it's an incredible catalog of music absolutely so you mentioned that there was some resistance there uh, to some degree I've, I've certainly read over the years about uh, the resistance to to trevor being a lead singer uh who i understand that the fans in the uk weren't aware of the two of you being in the band when uh, when the tour got to the uk yeah, I think it was um, it was okay in America because mo- most of the audience was stoned and they didn't you know, they didn't, <laughs> they, they, they didn't really realise that, that there'd been any change because yes, we're in this middle of 
you know, we're in the middle of this arena on this round stage. And uh, I think they were just interested in, you know, the experience of yes. But I think when it became, when we took it to the UK, it was the, the, uh, the, the, the eye of the scrutiny was far more exaggerated. And because um, we were playing the smaller theatres and we were just literally, um, it wasn't so much of a show. It was really just about the band. And I think that, um, I mean, Trevor got a lot more stick than I did, I think, ultimately, because um, him being the vocalist and replacing John Anderson, uh, who'd never been replaced before. Uh, I mean, at that time, I was the fourth Yes keyboard player. So I got a bit of an easier ride, I think, generally, because they'd already accepted that the keyboard uh, chair had been occupied quite a few times before. But it was tough on Trevor, but... You know, as I say, in hindsight, I think the album still stands up today as, as being, you know, a very significant album in Yes's history. Absolutely. Well, it's certainly one of my favourite Yes albums, I, I must say. Thank you. <laughs> um, you. You mentioned earlier at the start that obviously Yes is about to release their 22nd studio album, The Quest, and it's the, obviously the first one without uh, Chris Squire being in the band. What's different for you about Yes in the year 2021 compared to the Yes of 1980? Well, of course, without Chris, it's, bit, you know, it's, it's difficult because Chris was, you know, this is the first album without him, as you pointed out. You know, he, he was there from the very beginning. Uh, and, and really the maker of, I, I think, in many ways, uh, you know, obviously John Anderson's um, contribution as a vocalist and writer. It's significant, but you know, Chris has had had a vision for Yes, I think, that really carried it through through all the different chapters. And so um, I think when, when we lost Chris, it was really a turning point um, for Yes. Uh, and I think that uh, Benny was really the obvious candidate to come in, and, and that was sanctioned by Chris at the time when Chris was sick uh, and couldn't do the tour. So... Um, and sadly passed away. So when Billy came in, I think that we 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 pulled our resources and thought, you know, yes, music. Chris wanted yes to carry on. Uh, uh, we all wanted to carry on in the band. So since that time, we've been, we've been I think, one of the longest, if not the longest, um, six-year uh, without any personnel change, which is uh, incredible, really. And so we've got this closeness this camaraderie and, and i think that was important in the fact that we wanted to make an album uh, and bring everyone together to show that we just weren't you know a band assemble going out playing yes music to show that we've actually got some justification and uh, uh some you know some great ideas to continue yes as a as an entity sure and i think i think it's an impressive thing on its own um Jeff, that you know, both uh, Chris, you know, gave the indication he wanted it to continue, and there's still enough of a driving passion there amongst the the, the remaining core members to keep it going. I think it's amazing. Let alone produce um, a new new album of of work. And I mean, the quest is I've I've enjoyed the hell out of listening to it over the last uh, week or so. Um, what what are the standout moments for you in either the recording? Of that, or, or anything surrounding that album, you know, how how's it resonated with you, uh, given um, you're so far down the track with the band? Well, I think we came off the, the last album, 2014, which of course included Chris and um, Heaven and Earth, and we 
I don't think we were really that satisfied with that album, how it turned out. I don't think it was recorded particularly well. Uh, I think we rushed some of the songs. I mean, there were there were good moments on the album. Don't get me wrong, but uh, I think that you know, in terms of what the fans were expecting, it wasn't really uh, uh, what you know. It was quite a, a linear album in some respects. So I think we, bearing that in mind, we wanted to come back with something that had a lot more yes dynamics in it. So we had those quiet sections. We have we have the. Uh, the, the high impact sections with the rhythm section where you're flying all over the place. So to me, it's it's uh, it's really the way that I think yes, maybe should have gone on the last album. So we've we've caught up a bit of ground, and I think that the album has turned out really well. I think that you know, you can hear everybody playing great parts, um, great music. I think John Davison has come to the fore as a writer and as a performer. So. It's uh, it's it's onward really. I think that we, um, you know, we're happy to be still around making music yeah. and still going out. Uh, hopefully, going out um, in the new year. So, it's uh, it's ongoing really. Yes, is an ongoing thing. It I think is. That, you know, Chris Chris wanted that, and uh, Chris said that you know, by the he said when we're all gone, there'll still be yes music there, and uh, right. you know, we're, we're keeping that legacy going. No, that's great. And and so and the the actual recording process, Jeff, was it different to previous albums, or you uh, like was it quite remote, or you did manage to spend some time in the studio together? How, how did it come together? You spent a bit of time in the studio, but only over in the UK because, of course, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Billy and Alan had to do their rhythm parts, uh, the rhythm section uh, in the states. So, yeah, it was a different way of working, of course, but. Um, I think we were all in touch. Uh, you know, we had sort of conference calls or, or Zoom every week or so, uh, and everyone was exchanging ideas and uh, getting updates on all the mixes and that sort of stuff. And of course, Steve producing it, I think he was very central to pulling it all together, and he did a great job with that. Uh, working with um, Curtis Schwartz, the uh, uh, the engineer producer, so. I think in terms of the actual album, I think it's it's been very well recorded. I think it's been very well put together, and uh, uh, and so yeah, I mean we're we're optimistic that the, the fans will actually uh, get off on it and enjoy it. Sounds great, and obviously you're with a uh, a brand new record label as well for uh, the Quest. Yeah, I think that, that um, Steve's been with Inside Out for quite some time, and. Uh, I know Steve Hackett's with uh, Inside Out as well, so uh, it's it's uh, it's a nice change for us. I think that you know we were with Frontiers for quite a long time, and um, uh, and, and and Inside Out very very excited about this album. And uh, uh, Thomas Farber, the head of Inside Out, has been a very great supporter of everything we've done, certainly with this album, and hopefully uh, beyond that. So uh, it's been um, it's been a nice uh, mix of not just the band being uh, together, albeit uh, separated geographically for quite long periods, but uh, we've always had the support of the record label, which has been very, very forthcoming. That's excellent. Jeff, I'm going to take you back in time again just for a moment, uh, back to 1990, which um, saw another big chart hit with uh, the cover of Smoke on the Water by Rock Aid Armania, uh, sorry, Rock Aid Armania uh, which you played on and, and co-produced. Um there was a dream lineup on that uh, that record. It had some of the biggest names in rock. 
Can you talk a little bit about how you became involved in that and, and were there any moments where you turned into a complete fanboy? <laughs> uh, well, I think that at the time, uh, I know John D, who is, uh, uh, lived in Australia for many, many years, and you probably know him. Uh, mm. he, was, he was actually uh, running the Yes Fan Club at the time. And um, he was very motivated behind the whole thing uh, and, and got everybody together. So it was a great, uh, he, he asked me to co-produce it with uh, Trevor Horn's engineer, Gary Langan. So we went in the studio and he, he managed to round up all these people uh, to do it. So I, I got back and I was playing, Chris was the, uh, going to the actual uh, backing track now that we recorded, it was Chris on on bass and uh, Roger Taylor from Queen on drums uh, and myself on keys. Uh, we had various, the, the, the lineup of guitarists was incredible. You know, we had Tony Iommi, Dave Gilmore, uh, Brian May, uh, Alex Lifeson, you know, all these huge um, guitar idols. And then, of course, the vocalists, we had Paul Rogers, uh, Ian Gillen, and uh, Brian Adams, and all sorts of people. So it was the uh, it was uh, incredible to to, uh, uh, to experience because I think it was done over a period of about three or four weekends and, um, uh, and every weekend I'd go in and sit in the producer's chair and these guys would be coming in, Richie Blackmore would come in and all sorts of people, you know, that uh, I'd only ever worked with, um, well, not never worked with before. So it was, it was really uh, it was a, it was a great experience and uh, uh, really enjoyed it. And um, Jeff, obviously you've mentioned Trevor Horn there again and, and, and uh, not started out because I actually do want to cover your history of, of coming into music originally as a, a child or young adult. But we, we, as far as commercially, Trevor Horn was one of your original collaborators and you still uh, work together today. Um, what do you think is the strength in that partnership over its many different guises? Um, I think because Trevor was very much... It's very much a visionary in terms of production, mm. and I think that's what he's been known for. Uh, uh, and really, I was the, the more the musical side of it. I was more, although Trevor's a great musician in his own right. He he channeled himself towards being a producer, mm. and uh, it's enormously successful, as we know. But I think that we worked very well together because, you know, I provided his kind of dream sounds and the dream music that that he. He envisaged um, in the producer's chair, so uh, it was really a very great combination. And I think you know we never, I don't think we ever really ever had a crossword. And, and you know, I spoke to him last week. We we talk all the time. In fact, I'm going to see him this weekend. He's on a, a, a festival with his band called the Rewind Festival. So oh yeah, it's uh, it's, uh, it's it's as I said before, it's great to, to think that I'm still in touch with all of the people that I, I was in that that magical period for about three or four years at the beginning of the turn of the 70s, beginning of the 80s, that, um, uh, you know, I made a lot of friends and a lot of people like Carl Palmer and obviously John Wetton and, uh, and Chris and Steve Howe, who we still work with today. So it's uh, it's been, uh, you know, I, I consider myself to have been in a very privileged position to be able to... Uh, say that I've met all these people and worked with all these people. No, absolutely. And I, I just do want, I do want to do a call out to our listeners, and I will link to it in our show notes. There's an amazing video of, of Jeff and Trevor and this amazing, much larger band. Um, I think it's around 2004, Jeff, where um, 
Trevor and yourself are on stage with the original backing vocalists um, from Video Killed the Radio start performing live. I apologise, I've forgotten what the the venue or the occasion was. But uh, just, it was uh, Wembley, Wembley Arena. Yeah, just absolutely amazing to watch, and I will link to it. Just you know, it shows the power of the performers, um, and even though that's now sixteen years ago itself, just yeah, a- absolutely worth a watch. Yeah, and it's, uh, it was great, you know, to uh, because it was really more of a tribute to Trevor's, um, uh, you know, to Trevor's productions that he'd worked with Seal and the Pep Shop Boys and uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. So, uh, you know, we opened the show with the two two Buggles songs, uh, "Video Killed" and uh, and "Living in the Plastic Age," mm-hmm. and we had an orchestra and uh, you know like a. 40-piece band and all this. I mean, it was really over-the-top production, but we rehearsed very hard for it, and um, uh, it was fun for me to play, you know, with Grace Jones and uh, learn all these other songs, you know, the tattoo and all this weird stuff that Trevor had been involved with. So it was kind of... Um, it was it was great to... Uh, I think it was a great show all round. I've seen the video, Jeff, and, and it, it looks like it was an amazing show. It's uh, it's a shame that we miss out on so many uh, great uh, performances down here in Australia. But uh, you have been here a few times with Yes, and I've managed to uh, to come over and see you then. So that that was fantastic. One band that never made it down here, which uh, I believe that you're uh, the only member to have played on every single album in the band's history, was Asia, of course. And we, we talked earlier about... Uh, I think it was the number one album in in America at the time. Yeah, for nine so weeks, I think it was number one. Now? Yeah. What's happening with Asia now? You mentioned that you're still working with uh, with them. Yeah, well, we we did it um, just before. Well, not just before the lockdown. It's probably we we did a tour in America and to summer tour 2019, where we had um, uh, Carl Palmer's uh, ELP. Uh, legacy band uh, on the bill we had yes headlining we had john lodge um and we put together an asia set uh, which was before before we played with uh yes so i was on stage for probably three hours or so you know <laughs> and, and steve came and joined us on some of the stuff but we had i'd worked briefly the year before with um uh, ron bumblefoot tall who was uh yeah, he's a very, very talented guy. He was, he was in Guns N' Roses for quite a while. Mm. Uh, and he's in Sons of Apollo with uh, Mike Port, right now. And, uh, very talented guitarist and vocalist. So I, I asked him if he'd be interested in coming along and doing this Asia set with us. And uh, and he was really into it. So it's great to have him along because uh, he really channeled John's vocals as best he could. And I think that uh, it sounded, um, you know, he, he, he really took it seriously. And so it, he was very diligent in the way that he uh, he, he did everything. And, uh, and it was a great tour, you know, it was Carl, obviously myself and Carl. So we had three original members there when Steve Cohn joined us halfway through. So uh, it was um, it was a great, uh, great, great tour, that. The Royal Affair, it was called. And uh, uh, we... Uh, that was the last time we worked with Asia. So I, I'm hoping that maybe we can do something next year, which is the 40th anniversary of Asia wow. and yeah. uh, uh, the first album anyway. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I think that music, you know, I mean, sadly, 
well, you know, we can't replace John, obviously, but um, uh, certainly I think that we we should uh, keep Asia's music alive as best we can. Sure. Yeah, he here. And um, Jeff, I did mention I was interested just in your childhood to early adulthood. What what started you off on this amazing journey originally? What was what ignited the spark for you? I don't know. I just I just love music. And when when my my dad was a church organist, and uh, uh, you know, there was a lot of music around my house. My my mother played the piano. Um, my brother played guitar. So there was always my sister played the piano. Everyone played some musical instrument or something. There were four, four siblings, three siblings. So um, it was uh, very much a case of uh, music was there from the beginning, and, and uh, I think I, I I took it all in, and uh, uh, I was singing in choirs, and, and that had a, quite a big influence on me in terms of uh, making music. I think generally. And, um, uh, and then I got into playing bands, and I started playing bass originally, and then realised I wasn't much good at that. So <laughs> I used my uh, my my piano and organ training to uh, to better effect, I think. And uh, uh, so from that point on, it was something that I was wanting to do. And uh, and I think I studied music at school, and then I was in the school choir, and then uh, you know I, I, I you know, my music teacher was very very um, positive. And, and pushed me quite a bit, uh, and so when I left um, when I left school, I went to uh, a music college, Leeds Music College, uh, which was a really radical college at the time because it it only really focused on modern music. It wasn't oh. um, it wasn't steeped in a lot of classical music. It was about fifty fifty, but uh, nearly all the music colleges at the time were all straight ahead classical. But this one, you know, we were studying people like Chick Corea and Herbie wow. Hancock and. Okay. Uh, uh, you know all these, all these sort of influences that were coming in. So for me, it was really a, a bit of a dream because I just wanted to be in a in a band, and uh, and so I had this opportunity in the music college to be uh, to, to school myself in that way of thinking. And that was the kickoff, yeah. And it just occurred to me, Jeff. And apologies if I get the facts of this wrong. We did have the pleasure of interviewing Jan Pulsford. A, a while back, and I've known Jan for oh, many wow. years. Yeah, I was going to say, and I know she was very, very, um, you know, grateful for the opportunity she had to work with you. That was relative, it would have been as early in your career, but I, I believe that was fairly early in her career um, that she spent some some quality time with you, I believe. Yeah, we were in this, we had the same band. I think it was the first band when, when I moved after I finished music college. Oh, there um, you go. Okay. Uh, I moved to London and uh, I'd been at music college with actually Jan's boyfriend at the time, a guy called Tom Blaze, a very talented guitarist. And uh, uh, and he found me at a place in London. He'd just moved out of a place in London uh, uh, and he'd moved down the road and he said, oh, I've got, I, I'm moving out of this apartment. Do you want to move? It's it actually a big house. So uh, he, he, he kind of got me into the room there with my girlfriend and it was a kind of really weird house because we had like all these musicians and artists and uh, weird sort of people uh, and, and Chrissy Hind was in the house at the time she was living there wow. uh, and at that point she was actually a music journalist for NME oh, oh wow and and so I used to hear her, her practice she, she was getting guitar lessons from Chris Spedding at the time 
uh, and she wasn't very good, to be honest. <laughs> uh, so I thought, well, you know, she's she's never going to get anywhere. I was, well, I was sort of wrong about that one, <laughs> but um, she was, uh, yeah. So at, at that time, I, I was in a band with Tom and Jan, uh, and uh, we were—I I can't remember what we called, but it was kind of a funky, disco-y type band uh, called Fly at the time. Okay. And uh, and so that's how I got to know Jan, and then uh, and then she split up with her boyfriend, and I think she moved to uh, she split up with Tom, and I think she moved to Nashville. Yes, and, uh, yeah. But I think I got her the gig. That uh, yeah, that, that rings a bell to me, Jeff. I think she she absolutely yeah gave you the kudos for that. I, I do recall that. I think you're right. Yeah, I, I think I got her the gig. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Paul Weller or someone like that. But um, I can't I, I can't remember who the artist was now. But uh, uh, they were touring American, and I think she she fell for the for the truck driver or something or the coach driver and uh, and stayed over and lived in Nashville for God knows how many years before she moved back a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and doing doing well. Um, oh, that's great. And um, the other thing I've been dying to ask about is obviously um, Downs Braid. So I mean, you. you uh, the two of you have had some wonderful albums released over the last. It'd be around a decade now, wouldn't it? And your your one release this year was Halcyon Hymns, which again I've had um, a, a number of listens to, and, and is a. Uh, I'd have to argue is one of the most upbeat, positive, warm albums I've heard in a long time. Um, t- tell us, uh, tell us about the how that relationship's developed over the last ten well, years. Well, I Where- think we started. Um... I met him via by Trevor actually because we were doing we were doing a gig with Trevor in back in 2010. We we did uh, a Buggles reunion gig in this uh, little club in London, and uh, Chris at the time was working with Trevor on the producers album. Oh, yeah. So they they were kind of uh, together. And, and when I met Chris, he was playing the you know he was playing the keyboards as well. So. He said to me, you know, look, it'd be really nice if if, uh, if we could work together sometime because I, you know, I'm a huge Buggles fan. So I said, okay, well, you know, let's find a find an occasion. And it just so happened that uh, Chris shortly after that moved to uh, Los Angeles, uh, and I, I was working in LA at the same time, virtually with uh, on the Fly From Here album, on the Yes Fly From Here mm. album. So, and I just rejoined Yes at that time. So we started working together around, around I was working with Yes in the afternoon and, and going over to Chris's in the morning and we started to assemble that first album. So that was really how we, we started working and then I think thereafter, because he was over there and I was over, over in the UK, uh, we started to, to collaborate via the internet, so sending files to each other and that, that way. So it was, um, it's something that uh, started up probably, you know, almost 10 years ago, working that way. So when it, when it came to doing this, uh, the latest Yes album, it's not something that uh, seemed particularly difficult for me to do mm. because I'd already spent 10 years, well, I think we've done four, four studio albums with Chris now. So uh, it was um, it was almost a natural way of working now. You know, the, the, the days of sitting in a room and yeah. bashing out uh, these great, uh, which, you know, I miss it sometimes. I miss the fact that, that uh, you know, you can sit in a room and bash out an arrangement with the yeah. other guys in the band. But 
at the same time, I think it's very much more of a project, uh, the one that I'm doing with Chris, and so it's, it doesn't really have that necessarily uh, a band image. That's it's right. More of a, yeah, more, more of a, really a project. Yeah, no, absolutely, and um, we'll definitely be linking to that album as well. It's great. Um, and so we, we need to talk gear for a minute. Um, Jeff, what, what are your go-to pieces of gear? And I understand it will change depending on the project, but, but what are the, the pieces of uh, gear, like keyboard gear, that you just still go to time and time again or, or love at the moment? Well, I think, you know, I was brought up on piano and organ mm. and, and really... Those are the things that those are the, certainly those two instruments are the yeah. uh, the things that I'd always look to, uh, and I think with the new Yes album, uh, that's pretty heavily featured on that yes. because uh, you know that was my my upbringing, so I always reach out to those instruments, particularly the acoustic piano, but you know Hammond organ, Mellotron, uh, Mini Moog, all those things still they still have a place and they still. Sound-wise, they always fit well with the band. I mm. think. You know, and I think that uh, when you get into more than the digital keyboards, and I, you know, I love I love messing around with keyboards. Don't get me wrong. You know, I was the I had the, the, the first guy to take a Fairlight uh, CMI out on the road, which is uh, courtesy of your Australian <laughs> friends. Huh? That's but, right. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, that that was groundbreaking as well to me, which was to to have that ability to. You know, I suppose um, amalgamate uh, analog instruments with digital instruments. So that's something I've always been very interested in: is having that the warmth of analog, but having the attack and preciseness of a sample, or something like that. So uh, that kind of combination is something that I've. I, 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 I suppose I've been working on that ever ever since I really got into uh, messing around with keyboards and. Uh, uh, and it's still something that fascinates me today, albeit uh, a lot of the stuff is is virtual now. Yeah. It, it still it still fascinates me to be able to get out there and you know push buttons and twizzle knobs and that sort of thing. It's uh, it's it's great to be able to do that. That's right. And I'd argue that one of your many claims to fame, aside from playing the world's largest organ at the Sydney Opera House, is also sharing Fairlight duties with Kate Bush on a track. I don't think there's many people that can claim they've done that. So, No, in fact, I, uh, I, I showed Kate Bush how to use it. There because you go. <laughs> she was, um, she, I think she was recording in the same studio, in the Townhouse studio, when we were in there with uh, doing the first Asia album. So I've gone back to '81, something like that, and uh, and I think she she looked at that in the studio and said, "What what the hell's that?" You know, and I said, oh, "This is a Fairlight." She says, and I showed her a couple of things that did. She went, "Wow, wow!" She said, "I need that on my album." Yes. So, so yeah, she asked me, and um, I did a uh, like the horn samples that I'd, I'd worked on quite extensively. Uh, she asked me to come and play some horn stuff on uh, on Saturday in your lap. So it was uh, it was great. She's a really really wonderfully talented yes. uh, artist, as you know. So uh, uh, it was it was quite an honour to be working with her on that. You know, it was great. And so I mean, obviously, with uh, an amazing career and and hopefully a lot more years left in it, what what are some of the key lessons, if you had the opportunity, you'd want to pass on to other keyboard players, Jeff? Well, I think the the, uh, 
the, the lines have become a little bit blurred now because mm. keyboard playing has almost become uh, part of the producer's chair. You know, I think that uh, right. because because keyboards now have the ability to make virtually any sound. And, uh, you know, if you listen to these huge string libraries from Spitfire Audio or, or Vienna strings, you know, it's all it's all driven by keyboard play. So um, I think that really it's, it's uh, uh, you know, rather than picking up a guitar, you know, I would say that, um, uh, which I, I don't disagree with because, you know, I, I love the sound of guitar as well, but uh, I think that, you know, young guys coming through in music nowadays, they've pretty much got to have some, some kind of knowledge of keyboard. So I'd mm. say that, you know, Get get stuck in and 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 maybe learn how to play a piano, you know, or, yeah. or learn how to play an organ, you know, because this is the fundament, the fundamental instruments that uh, I consider to be, uh, you know, the source of all keyboard playing. So don't just buy a, you know, a, a plastic keyboard synth or something like that. Get something with a weighted action. Get something that, you know, you can really put expression into and, and that would be my, my advice yeah no it's great and i would i've said it before on this show jeff and i'll say it again that you can't say you're a keyboard player till you've spent some quality time with a, a b3 so you don't know what you've done until you've played a b3 no exactly and, and the thing is it's a totally different technique you know, the, the, the way that you, you you have to take your hand off to add some tonal textures and they're all yeah, it's, it's sort of a very mechanical thing. You've got the swell pedal, uh, you've got uh, you know the Leslie switch on and off and fast and slow. So there's a lot of uh, and then the sweeps you do on the organ and the way the draw bars. So there's a lot of uh, things to remember. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just like you, you you turn the organ on and you play the keyboard. You know, there's all this technique that's involved with playing. Uh, you know, when you list of people like John Lord, you know, and yeah. what what amazing, and, and of course, you know, my hero Keith Emerson, you know, what yes. those guys did with, with Hammond organ. Uh, that's really, what's that's really what I would say to young aspiring keyboard players is, is listen to those guys and listen to how they, they those sounds that they made. That's right, Jeff. You you've worked with such an amazing lineup of musicians throughout your career. I'm just wondering if there are any other artists in particular that you've got a burning desire to work with or or any projects that you're really passionate about developing still? Um, I didn't really like, you know, a chance, I always bumped into all these people in the studios, but I never got a chance to work with them. And I'm talking about people like uh, Peter Gabriel, uh, Sting. You know, if ever I got a chance to work with those kind of guys, then, you know, I, I'd consider that. I could learn a lot from those guys, and and uh, and it'd be an interesting combination. But you know, having said that, uh, I, I'm just happy to um, just to keep uh, keep going and and keep uh, making music. Uh, as, as I said before, I think it's a privilege, and uh, you know, I'm happy that I've, I've managed to go you know, six decades in the music business without having to do anything else. Yes. <laughs> Oh, and look, I think it's fair to say a lot's gone right for you, Jeff. Um, but one of our favourite questions in every show is what hasn't gone right, and that's just purely an on-stage train wreck that's happened to you over the years. So whether it's a technical slip-up or just something that a song's not gone right, is there a memorable train wreck you can recall? Oh god, yeah, there've been plenty of them. 
Yeah, it's a bit like yeah, the trains going all right, all different directions. Uh, I've had keyboard rigs fall apart, you know, where they just literally collapsed in front of me. Um, I've had playing with a detuned instrument and coming in the wrong key. Um, <laughs> I mean, you name it, you know. Uh, I've never actually ever had to catch the gig touch wood. Um, That's good. So I've always. I've always been there and always turned up. Um, so, you know, that's that's the one thing I I've, I've, I can have a, a claim to fame for. But um, yeah, I mean, there's always things go wrong. Suddenly, you, you can corpse out completely. I mean, yes, music. When you consider that, that's oh, yeah. enormously complex. And uh, there are times where I just literally, yeah, completely lost my place. I just thought, whoa, you know, where am I? So it does happen. But I think that you know, in the whole. It's, uh, it's something that, you know, these, these things do happen. I actually, funny enough, one of the fans that uh, I was talking to about coming to watch this, he said, oh, I, I love it when it goes wrong because I'm, <laughs> I've, witnessed, I've witnessed that myself and that's a one-time experience I can remember, you know. So there's, there's upsides to it as well. That's right. And, and I think when you mentioned about forgetting stuff in the middle of quite complex bits, I, I know a few of our guests have confirmed, and I know personally, that the more you think about where you are, the harder it is to pick it up, and you need to rely on muscle memory to some extent. Yeah, that's right. And it's actually most unnerving when you're in a small venue and you've got like the, the audience are watching, you know, they can see everything you're doing very, very closely. When you're in a big arena and, and you know, the audience is sort of a sea of people, you don't feel, you can sort of feel quite... Uh, uh, hemmed off, you know, almost isolated from the proceedings and then and, and just concentrate on what you do. So, uh, whereas when you've got people staring at you and breathing down yeah. you, checking you out, you know, it's much, it's actually much more unnerving. Yeah, that's right. And um, we're on to our last two questions, Jeff. And the second last one being we, we love to get our guests to tag a keyboard player. So, someone else. Um, either dead or alive, that they would love to hear interviewed. And I, I mean, I know you've already mentioned John Lord and Keith Emerson, but aside from those two icons, anyone you would love to hear or, or find out more about? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I was one of my favourite bands of all time, which I'm going to probably tell you about, was uh, was Caravan. Oh, yep. Uh, 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 David Sinclair was a, a big inspiration to me in, in a lot of ways uh, because his Hammond playing was very, very, um, uh, very unusual in the fact that he was really just playing lead, single line lead mm -hmm. solo parts that went on for for hours and hours, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and they were very, very melodic, very tuneful. Um, you know, you put hammer through wah-wah pedal and stuff like that. So he he would be someone I'd, I'd really like to, to pick his brains and go through and say, you know, that that song um, for Richard or whatever, you know, I, I think that that would be interesting for me to go through. No, great pick. And then the, the last horror question, the, the Desert Island Disc question, Jeff, five um, five albums that it, maybe you could live without them, but just would be the top five if you had to choose them. Um, I'd definitely go have Land of the Grand Pink, Land of the Grand Pink by Caravan. That yep. would be great. That would be uh, an album that was particularly um, special to me. Um, 
Abba Gold would be another one. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I, I, I loved Abba. That was a great. John, both John Wetton and I were, were huge Abba fans, and uh, uh, I, I'm not saying it influenced our music particularly, but it it was something that we we, we loved the way that it was all arranged. And uh, so it's funny you say that, Jeff. So I'll just interrupt there for a second because Abba's always stood out to me. The production values are just beyond brilliant, and and so to the arrangement as well. What's your take as a very experienced producer yourself on? Yeah, what was the secret there aside from the great songs and arrangement? It just it is pristine music still now. I, I think it's just incredible. I, I mean, I give a lot of credit to uh, to Benny mm. uh, Anderson with his uh, his um, keyboard uh, lines and stuff like that, and those lovely chords. And you know, it's not as simple as it sounds. No. It's, it's, it's that that was that's the art of Abra. I think is that there's all those little undercurrents, these little hooks that are going underneath the track. Uh, and and I, I, you know, it was um, quite amazing because John John Wetton and I wrote a song for uh, uh, Anjeta Velsko that, that oh, yeah. uh, appeared on one of her albums, uh, and it was interesting to go around Polish studios where they they recorded all this stuff, and uh, uh, we worked with the rhythm section, uh, a, a bass player called Rutger Gunnarsson, and he was actually. One of the main guys that arranged all the rhythm section stuff, and wow. uh, uh, so he was just really a, a hired gun that that uh, that, um, that that they used extensively to do that side of things. But I mean, it's just amazing uh, uh, volume of, of great tracks and very a lot of dynamics and yes. beautifully recorded stuff. So they really had it all together. I think that they did. You know, great. Sorry for the interruption here, but that's a great second album you picked there, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd probably go for number three would probably be Four and a Four. Oh, yeah. Um, because, again, you know, the production's incredible. Mark Langer's production on that is amazing. And, and the, uh, there's not a bad song on that album. No. It's, uh, it's just got everything going for it. I think that, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, I think it was out shortly before the the, the Asia album, and mm. uh, I remember thinking, you know, these these songs are so great, and, and Lou Graham's voice is incredible. Uh, Mick Jones, who I, I met, he actually asked me to join Foreigners several wow. times, but um, I was doing other things. But every time I was either in Yes or I was in Asia or whatever. But uh, um, so I never got the opportunity to join Foreigner. But uh, as I say. He asked me a couple of times, or his manager asked me, and uh, uh, and um, it didn't happen. But no. you know, it's probably a good thing because Foreigner, uh, you know, they continue today and they're they're doing great things. And uh, uh, you know, that that album to me is one of the one of the best it rock is. albums of all yeah. time. Great album. I think Thomas Dolby played keyboards on that, didn't he? He did, and of course, Thomas Dolby was Bruce Willis keyboard player who co-wrote the Killed the Radio Star. So, oh, okay. it's, it's, yeah. See, I think the thing was when when uh, when we all started off in London round about the beginning. Well, I started off around about mid seventies. Uh, it's a very small place. You know, you bump mm. into a lot of people, and uh, you know, everyone seems to be quite uh, quite closely connected. So. Um, there were rehearsal rooms that people would always be in. That's how, of course, we got to meet up with Yes because we were in the same rehearsal room. Mm. So there's a lot of... Uh, you just bumped into all these people who later... As I said, I was living with 
Chrissy Hines, you know. Yes. It's, uh, it was um, it was this little hub of of activity that um, you know you always ended up the studios or a lot of recording studios at that time. So you always ended up uh, meeting people, sitting there having a coffee with I don't know Phil Collins or or Ozzy Osbourne, whoever yes. you know. It was um, that was the kind of place that it was. So uh, uh, I was sort of um, grateful to be. Uh, associated at that time i'm sure it doesn't work like that anymore because of course there hardly any record uh, actual yeah everyone's working from home but uh, so yeah so great uh, great times and um uh, and that's how uh, the thomas dolby connection came about that's amazing so that's that's three great albums you, you're really hitting them out of the park jeff so the last two any two other ones you would love um i think um what's going on by oh, yeah. uh, Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. Uh, I was really uh, when I was at, at, at college, I really got into um, to um, Motel and uh, mm. uh, just the arrangements, the string arrangements, um, the fact that they, the the productions were incredible. You know all these uh, orchestral instruments that they'd used, like bassoons and oboes, on some of these Tamla Motown records, and so. Uh, but I think the vocally, you know, Marvin Gaye's voice on on that album yeah. is it's quite special, and uh, you know, I, I always appreciate great singers, and um, you know, one of the things like with Asia, you know, John Wetton, his voice was a, a fantastic mm. singer. Uh, I worked with Greg Lake on a project, yeah. another great voice. So uh, I was drawn to, to uh, you know, great great singers, and that was something that. Um, I think uh, you know it, it. It became essential uh, to me to focus on uh, you know to focus on 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 the voice. Yes, uh, so that was it for me, really. Great. Um, and then last one, Jeff. Last album. I think I'd have to. I've got to put. I've got to put a Beatles album in there. Yeah, uh, and I good think. Move. The, the White Album, the double album, is uh, is a fantastic piece of work. I think that that really defined the Beatles. Not, I mean, I know Sgt. Pepper's was a, a you know a, a groundbreaking album in its own way, but I think the White Album really stretched, really stretched out, and and you could you could see all the individual elements of the Beatles, yes. what they were capable of, and so uh, and so to me that was uh, that's probably one of the great albums of all time. Jeff, one more question before we let you go. Last night I was doing a little bit of uh, trolling on YouTube, checking out some videos, and I, I stumbled across the um, the video for Go from uh, the Astra album. Asia oh, Day. wow, yeah. What an amazing slice of 80s uh, video clip there. <laughs> yeah, and the, the hairstyles are something what else, aren't they? remember about it? John Wetton looks like Ozzy Osbourne in, in the 80s period. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. We we had they were heavy on makeup, heavy on big on hair. That was the uh, that was the era. But uh, yeah, I mean it's uh, uh, a lot of people really like that album. Some people, it's a great uh, I think album. At that uh, at that point, I think we'd lost a bit of traction with um, with uh, Asia. But uh, I think you know the album as a standalone item really really worked well. So uh, yeah, that that's. Uh, 
That's a period piece, the Go video. And, uh, <laughs> Speaking yeah, of period yeah. pieces, though, Jeff, with the the 80s, there were some iconic sounds there, and um, I was unaware of this connection until doing the research for this show. One of my favourite albums of the 1980s is Mike Oldfield's Islands, which you also featured on in one of the songs, and it's a brilliant song. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's, it's great. I mean, working working with Mike was, um, was a great experience. Yeah, not he, so much as the fact that he's, he's a fantastic musician, but he was also an incredible producer and uh, yes. an engineer. You know, uh, I was surprised at the speed of his engineering skills, but um, it was good fun working with him. We went in a in a, a villa out in uh, up in France somewhere and uh, up in the up in the mountains, uh, and it was um, it was good. It was just just him and I. You know, we just um, just we just got on with it and. Uh, uh, it was very, very uh, interesting experience because he's a, an, an as I said, he's an amazing oh, producer and engineer. And my, uh, you know, thoughts and prayers to Mike doing it hard out in the Bahamas. Now I do feel for him. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yes, tough, tough life. Tough life. So, Jeff, look, I cannot thank you enough for for the time you've spent with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure, and um, we look forward to um, both Yes and Asia going on from strength to strength, and hopefully seeing one or both of those outfits out in Australia again eventually. We're, we're very much looking oh, I forward hope to so. it. I hope so. We miss it. Yeah, no, great, great pleasure having you on. Thank you. And there we have it. Look, as always, that was a pleasure. Matt, what, what a great guy Jeff is. And just, again, what an amazing career. Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at the types of people he's played with. It's uh, what an enviable list. It is. And um, for those of you that haven't been to the Sydney Opera House, you, you seeing is believing the size of um, the organ installation there. It is just amazing. Um, but yeah, just the, the scope of, of Jeff's career is just gobsmacking and um, he's certainly not done yet by any stretch of the imagination. Absolutely. I mean, uh, the guy's played on one of my favourite Yes albums, so it was a real pleasure to uh, to have a chat with him. Yes, and please do check the show notes. I said between the, the um, Braid Downs and, and, and all the other stuff that we've linked to it, it is well and w- truly worth a check out. Um, but yes, thanks, and we'll be back again in a few weeks. But just a reminder, you can keep in touch uh, via a few means, and uh, thanks to those. We have had a couple of emails in the last couple of weeks, so I really appreciate that as always. Um, our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash keyboardchronicles and on Twitter at the keyboard chr one Also a big shout out, we've had some nice chats on Twitter recently with some listeners and, and other keyboard players. That's always good fun. Uh, but as always, if you like good old-fashioned email, then do drop us a line at editor at keyboardchronicles.com. If you would like to become an official supporter, we do have a Patreon account where for the price of a coffee a, a month, you can help us go from strength to strength. The first set of bonus content is up there at the moment with more to come, much more to come. Um, so if you are interested in doing that, um, www.patreon.com forward slash keyboardchronicles just for something different. So, uh, Matt, thanks again hugely for joining me this episode. Thank you, David. Absolute pleasure. And uh, most importantly, thanks to you all out there for listening around the world, and we hope to see you back here next episode.